Talking Animals on WMNF. This is Veterans Day. We want to thank all who've served and all those who are serving. I'm Duncan Strauss. And before I go any further, I want to thank Bev Capshaw for hosting the show last week in my absence, delivering a stellar string of animal songs. As for today's show, my guest is Jeffrey Mason, the New York Times bestselling author of books about animals and their emotions, including When Elephants Weep and Dogs Never Lie About Love, which reportedly sold over one million copies each. His new book is Lost Companions, Reflections on the Death of Pets, which is informed by Mason being on the cusp of turning 80 and contemplating his own mortality. The new book examines a number of issues and scenarios that fulfill what the title promises, but also widens out considerably to address livestock, wild animals, dog meat markets, veganism, and more. I'll air the wide-ranging interview I recently recorded with Mason in just a moment here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's show, I'll speak with Quinn Piggott, one of the leaders of Replace Denver BSL, an organization that was pivotal in passing the repeal of Denver's ban on pit bulls, which voters overturned after the ban had been in place for more than 30 years. Right now, though, speaking from Sydney, Australia, in a Zoom conversation that initially sounds a little shaky the way Zoom calls sometimes do, but it's just in that fleeting moment, and it's not representative. The rest is pretty good. Anyways, this is by Zoom, by Sydney, Australia. This is Jeffrey Mason on Talking Animals on WMNF. Thanks for joining us on the show, Jeffrey. It's a great pleasure, Duncan. I'm here up in the Blue Mountains near Sydney, Australia. Yeah, well, that's not exactly around the corner from us, but I, it's all the more exciting to be able to speak with you on the uh, fancy technology that Zoom and others provide. So that's great. So Yeah, amazing. It is amazing. Yeah, it really is. So you've written a number of books about animals and their emotions. What prompted you to write a book about the death of pets and other animals? Why now, for example? Well, the- <laughs> Good question, because I'm turning 80. Yeah. So I'm starting to think about death. I never thought about it before. And uh, my much younger wife is trying to get me to stop thinking about it now. Yeah, I'm but sure. But we also, we've, we've been together for 26 years and for, we've always had dogs and cats. And recently we lost our most beautiful dog, Benji, yeah. who was a golden lab. And I, um, that, I write about him, of course, in that book. I wrote another book about him called The Dog Who Couldn't Stop Loving because he was that kind of dog. He loved cats, he loves birds, he loves rats, he loves mice. There's no living creature that he didn't love. And that taught me a lot. <laughs> so when he died, it was a tremendous blow for our son who was with him in Germany. My wife flew back to Germany to be with him in his last week. I had to stay with our younger son, but it really affected me. And it I wanted to read something about the death of pets that was serious, and I couldn't find it. It was mostly Shirley MacLaine talking about how you're going to cross the Rainbow Bridge and meet your dog in heaven. And as an agnostic, I don't believe that. So yeah, <laughs> in the end, I decided, well, I'll write it myself then. Sure. Well, you mentioned a handful of things that I want to explore a little bit more deeply. I guess going in reverse order, since you brought up Benji, I mean, in some ways, parts of the book present kind of a form of almost anticipatory grief for Benji because the elderly dog as you were writing the book and and then we later learn that Benji has passed away as you've just noted although you'd written much of the book before that happened so looking back just from however much distance that is what about your feelings about Benji's death might alter your feelings about parts of the book that you had already written or in what ways might Benji's passing illuminate parts of the book well I, I, I like your phrase I hadn't I wished I'd used it in my book anticipatory grief <laughs> well grief certainly there's the a sense uh, along the way it's not a big part of the book but it's certainly Benji's presence is there and, and yet you get the sense that he's probably a toward 
towards the end of his uh, journey here. So, and that's, then, sure enough, that's we, right. Yeah. yeah. But I think everybody, well, the truth is everybody lives with any dog is aware um, that their lifespan is so much shorter than ours yeah. that we're almost certainly going to be there when they die. And I mean, I have to say, I didn't think about it much when he was a young, healthy dog running with me along the beach. But as he began to grow older and there were times when he'd look at me like, hey, I'm not going for a walk. You go. And then I, I realized it's because it hurts him. He is getting old. He doesn't want to do that anymore. He wants to lie in the sun surrounded by his friends. Sure. But that I didn't want to think about death. But in the end, as he got older and older and our son was in Berlin with him, we were living in Sydney. My wife's a, a pediatrician here. Yeah. And we couldn't just leave and our son was saying god mom and dad you know benji doesn't want to leave the apartment and he's beginning to the, the apartment is his bathroom and mm. i just don't know how to handle this and i'm 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 grieving and i'm i'm out of my depth here please yeah. come and help me yeah and i i do understand that and it also gave me a, a a better understanding of what other people go through and i did hear some people i began talking to neighbors and other people about this and some of them would say well you know a lot of people especially people who don't live with dogs or cats don't get it and they say oh come on you know it's just a dog it's just a cat no she or he is not their family yeah well that just so, just know, the I, dog thing is yeah telltale sign of someone who's never uh, loved an animal right that's uh that's right yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah and, and you know i should have said in the book i i guess i was i wasn't quite impolite enough but i should have said if anybody says that to you don't talk to them anymore more. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, you don't need, I mean, it's, it's impossible to explain to someone who really doesn't get it what this is about. Yeah, no, that's true. But that I guess that's one of the many reasons to write a book like this is to help provide some instruction and guidance to people who, of course, do have animals and are going to face uh, losing them if they haven't already. And maybe for the people who aren't as directly uh, connected, still maybe some information that they could use. So the next time they don't say, hey, it's dog, get over it. So Well, that that yeah, that's very optimistic. I like that idea. I hope that's true. <laughs> Yeah, well, not just yeah for all animals, you know. For, I mean, there are times. I, I'm, I'm sure this is not the topic here, but every once in a while, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't eat any animals, so sometimes I'll go to someone's house and they will, with astonishment, say, "What you're not having the chicken? No." And you know, I try. I don't want to impose my beliefs, but I, I'm often astonished at how little they get of that. Why would you? It's just a dead chicken. And I say, yeah. well, you know, once it was a live chicken. <laughs> right. Again, the word just in some of these use is uh, super unfortunate, it seems like. But uh, anyway, yeah, just... Uh... God, you, you got it, Duncan. That's yeah. a word that should disappear from the human vocabulary. Well, depending on what follows it, for definitely it should be scrutinized more carefully, for sure. So, uh, so yeah. I'm totally on your way. Yeah. So one of the other things you mentioned kind of in your initial response, I said there was three or four things I wanted to elaborate on. I mean, you do mention uh, a couple of times in the book that you're on the cusp of, of turning 80 and you make some half-joking references to your wife putting you out to pasture. But how much, in all seriousness, of becoming an octogenarian or more broadly, as you've noted, I guess, contemplating your mortality did propel your work on Lost Companion? Well, I think it was, um, I think it was actually quite important. I don't think I could have written that book at, at 50, say. Mm -hmm. um, and I do notice that when I, you know, my wife is 54 now, and she's just not all that interested in talking about death. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, I mean, she feels that, of course, in the case of, of dogs and the animals that have lived with us, yeah. um, if anything, more than me, you know, she's incredibly empathic uh, and around children. And of course, as a children's doctor, sometimes she has to face the death of children, which is unbearable. Yeah of course. Yeah. Sure. But it, it's not her favorite topic. So that um, I can't I can't just say to her, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about death. And I had that dream, which was a real dream at the beginning of my book, where I meet the angel of death. And it's like, you know, she wanted to put her hands over her ears and said, don't tell me. I don't want to hear about the angel of death. Yeah. 
No, it sounds like... I do think... I mean, yeah. Go, no, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. You go ahead. It sounds like... I like listening to you, to be honest. I love well, the way you I, talk. Well, yeah. I, that, I think we've gotten things reversed, if that's the case. But no, but it just sounds like that's uh, partly, I guess, for a 25-year uh, age difference and just different people at different kind of phases and what they think about and why that she's not really keen on having those kind of conversations unless they absolutely must happen. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that, I mean, I can't think, I mean, I'm, I've been passionately in love with this woman for 26 years and we have two beautiful grown sons. So I could not be a more happy person. Yeah. But in retrospect, that, that is the disadvantage of, of, of a marriage where there's that huge age difference that one of you is going to die before the other long before. Yeah. And that's a very painful thing to think about, but it, it is something we face with our dogs and cats right. all the time. I must say that is one of the few advantages. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm a dog person rather than a cat person. I love both. But um, a, a cat does, on average, live longer than a dog. Right. <laughs> you know, cats easily live to 20 years. Um, so you don't quite have to face that. And and I do say a little bit in the book that the cats seem to be, not that you asked me this, but I, it, it just suddenly occurred to me that cats, I think, have a different sense of death than dogs do. For dogs, I think dying is, is, is something to do with their relationship with us. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I quote in the book a vet who said, never ever leave the room when your dog is about to die because I've seen them look about frantically. Where are you? Where is my person? And I don't believe that's true of cats. And the reason for that, I think, is because cats are normally solitary creatures. That is, they have been. That's in their, their forebears were solitary big cat. Yeah. And when they are ready to die, they go off by themselves to be alone and die. Yeah. And a dog doesn't want to die alone. They want you right next to them. Right. No, it's almost like a stylistic or personality, just a fundamental difference, just in all kinds of ways. That I mean, some of it's sort of stereotypical, but, but for a reason, just the way cats are and the way dogs are and all the people that are cat people versus dog people, and they, they all criticize each other for those kind of reasons. But it all, <laughs> does, right. kind of, it does all kind of shake out to yeah, towards the end, they would do it differently because anything else of importance, they typically do differently. But yeah, when you uh, quoted that vet talking about being in the room when, when a dog's euthanized and the, and the owner or the family's not there, that just really got to me because I thought oh, I, I, we've been through that experience a few times and it's hard to imagine. I mean, it's heartbreaking if you are there, but it was more heartbreaking in some ways to imagine that dog looking frantically by itself or herself in the vet's office saying, hey, really? This is how I'm going out, so. Yeah, exactly. Oh, God, you got it. Duncan, I, I, maybe this is unfair, but would you tell me just a few words about you <laughs> and your background? Because you, you, you get all this so well. What Have you been around animals all your life? Have you been? Uh, well, a lot of my life. You know, it was a, kind of an interruption during college and kind of getting career started and stuff, but then I came back to it. And, you know, the, just since we've been talking, there's been a few cats and one dog uh, in and out of this room that I'm talking to you from. So, but mostly I think it's now having done the show quite, quite a number of years, just getting to talk to all kinds of people like you and others who have written books or studied animals or have some other kind of expertise, either scientifically or anecdotally or otherwise. And just having kind of a love for it, I guess, uh, all those things kind of combined, I guess, make mm -hmm. a very amateur, yeah. uh, I wouldn't even say expert, but certainly a fan, I guess. Well, I am too. I would not call myself an expert. I, I'm just somebody fascinated by it. In fact, when we first got on and we were on video, I saw behind you a beautiful picture of elephant. Yeah. And that reminded me that you know, that's how I first got involved in all of this. Gee, I, it must be about 25, no more, about 28 years ago, 30 years ago that I wrote a book called When Elephants Weep. Yeah. I, um, the best thing about it is the title. It's a good title, you have to admit. <laughs> Absolutely and, is. And they, Go ahead. Sorry. It turns out they don't weep, but they do mourn. Yeah. In fact, it's hot that they mourn more deeply than humans mourn. So, yeah. Um, well, I'm a real elephant nut, as the wall hanging uh, that, you, that you spotted suggests. And for all kinds of reasons, including just how emotionally complex they are in ways that yes. include, of course, grieving, but other ways too, and just the way they look after each other. And that's something else, of course, that you address in the book about the way they grieve each other. But even the way they, they'll grieve if a certain human has done something significant for them, 
when that human dies. Well, that's right. And I don't know if I mentioned in the book, possibly not, but I only learned about this recently. Um, there was a, a person who uh, helped a lot of elephants in South Africa. And yeah. when he died, uh, you probably know this story, a group of wild elephants came from a vast distance to pay homage to him. And I looked into that because it just, it sounded like one of those just so stories, yeah. you know, an anecdote that, that that flies around the internet, but not true, but it apparently is actually the case. Yeah. It really is true that these elephants recognized that he had loved elephants, that he had taken care of them, and they knew that he died, the word got around, and they came to pay their respects. I think that's just astonishing. Yeah, it, it is amazing. And it, it is one of those things, like you say, that sounds like a Apocryphal until you find out that there's people that know it to be true or, or witness it themselves or something so that it's clearly verifiable and you just think because again if you care at all about elephants or animals generally you certainly know that they do grieve each other in the way they come by when one has fallen and kind of pay their respects but the idea that Absolutely. it would extend, extend to a human and that they would make this parade through where he lived uh, where otherwise they wouldn't be anywhere near their or at least in that way, I mean, that just speaks to me about among the things that are extraordinary about elephants. But um, so. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, I wonder, Duncan, if we're not shortchanging other animals along the way. Yeah. Because we know so little about how they think about or feel about or, excuse the word, celebrate death. So certainly dogs get deeply upset when their person dies yeah. before them. We know that. Sure. Um, that's for certain. Um, so it's not terribly surprising that other animals could do that. Now, in the book, I think I tell, yes, I'm pretty sure I tell the story of Charlie Russell, who unfortunately died much too young. He's this extraordinary man from Washington, self-taught about bears, wound up in a remote region of Russia. Yeah. And the Russian authorities would send him these baby bears and he would raise them and let them go into the forest yeah. once they were ready. And evidently the bears were noticing this because one day he was sitting outside and a female bear, a mother bear with two babies came and he thought, uh-oh, I'm toast. You know, mother yeah. bears don't like to see humans around sure. their babies. But instead of which, she dropped off the two babies next to him and left yeah. and went off foraging in the forest. And the only explanation he gave, and it's obviously true, she had watched him take care of baby bears, realized he was a reliable babysitter yeah. and left her two right. girls with him. I think that's just amazing. Yeah, it really is. It's like she had decided, hey, I like this guy's style. He can, he can look after my babies. Yeah, so. That's Right. Yeah. yeah. And, it, you know, it makes you wonder in a, in a much broader sense if we had a totally different relationship with wild animals in general. If there were no such thing as sport hunting, which is one of I'm one of my bugbears. I just hate it. I, ha yeah. I hate the name. I hate the, the thought of it. But if, if we as humans had never engaged in that, whether we would have a different relationship with wild animals. Yeah. You it's can't really, help wondering. I'm, yeah. It's really interesting to ponder. I mean, I, I'm always, at least under the current situation where hunting and all kinds of other things do exist, I'm always really nervous when I hear stories about the gentleman you just mentioned. And I think of Timothy Treadwell and I think of all kinds of people that, yeah. that think they have a special bond with their tiger or their bear or their whoever. And that is undoubtedly true until the day that they, they get killed by that animal. And uh, Well, that's, listen, listen, I nobody knows this more than me. It's so weird. I think I woke up this morning thinking about my one encounter with a wild elephant, maybe because I was going to talk to you. I don't know why, but yeah. I woke up and I was thinking about it. I may have dreamt about it. And I realized how stupid I was when I began writing When Elephants Weep. I went off to visit wild elephants in, in India mm. and came across a herd and I started chanting in Sanskrit because I used to be a professor of Sanskrit right, of to this female with, with a baby next to her and she charged me. Oh, wow. And, you know, I, I, it's a miracle that I'm alive because she was, you know, I'm what, five foot nine and she was, you know, 10 feet tall and yeah. I weigh 160 and she weighs 10,000 pounds and yeah. she was going to kill me. And, you know, she didn't she didn't think, oh, this is Jeffrey Mason. He loves animals. He's a vegetarian. I'm not going to hurt him. She thought somebody's threatening my baby. I'm going to squash him. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. I can't think about anything yeah. except I'm protecting my babies and this guy's got to go. Yeah. So that's yeah. absolutely right. And for yeah. us to, to, to believe otherwise is foolish. And I realize yeah. that now. Yeah. Well, let me let folks know this but is talking I, I animals. I really wonder, you know, I hello. Oh yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to start to just kind of uh, announce uh, who you were. Just yeah, no, no, no. I thought I lost you. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm just saying this is talking animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. I'm speaking with Jeffrey Mason, the New York Times bestselling author of When Elephants Weep, Dogs Never Lie About Love, among many others. His new book is Lost Companions, Reflections on the Death of Pets. He spoke from Sydney, Australia in a Zoom call recorded Friday. So, yeah, please go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, w I was just saying that we can't sentimentalize animals. On the other hand, we can't pretend that we know everything about their emotional life. I remember when I first started writing When Elephants Weep, um, every scientist I met just dismissed it, except one. Yeah. But every other one said, this is ridiculous and absurd and you're just imagining this or you're, you know, that, that terrible word, you're anthropomorphizing. Uh, you're, yeah. you're just projecting your own feelings onto animals. I remember I met a gray fish researcher at the University of California at Berkeley. I went to his office. Uh, I didn't tell the story because I know he would not have liked it. And he was alive. He's now dead. So I don't mind. I mean, he, was, he knew everything there was to know about fish. But in his office, he had these tiny little fish bowls with, with various large fish in them. And I finally said to him as politely as I could, don't you think these fish would rather be living in the ocean? Or don't you think they're at least bored? And he got angry. He oh, said, wow. what kind of word is bored? How would you... Could you possibly know that these fish are bored? And I said, come on. It's, how could yeah. you not know that they're bored? Right. He couldn't even entertain the notion that they have feelings. Wow. And, but, and, yeah. and that's not true anymore, Duncan. I think yeah, there's been a real shift. Hard, there's been a shift. And yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah. You know, it, it gives me hope. <laughs> yeah. No, over the years I've been doing this show, uh, just the thing you, the word you mentioned, the, the sometimes dirty word, or it used to be, anthropomorphizing just scientists and others view of that and whether you should or shouldn't and whatever has definitely shifted over the years and uh and now I yeah think there's a greater understanding about for so many animals there is an emotional life whether people wanted to acknowledge that 10 20 years ago or, or beyond or not now i think people do recognize that so uh, they're more open yeah to energy and i i believe i've always believed that all you have to do is look at your dog <laughs> yeah and then you know it i mean i've never met anybody not even a scientist <laughs> not even a scientist who hurts dog would ever deny the fact that they have strong feelings. In fact, that is one of the ways I started writing about this. I was at Stanford and I met some of the people who were working with Beagle, who mm -hmm. apparently uh, are like humans, they can suffer from narcolepsy. That is, they suddenly fall asleep in the middle of the day. You know, they'd be wow. walking around saying, whoa. Yeah. And um, so, I mean, I understood. They said, look, we have these pilots who suffer from it. We've got to understand this. And so we're working with dogs. And I, you know, I was very reluctant. I said, well, I, I have to tell you, honestly, I don't like the fact of doing experiments on dogs because they can't consent. And they said, oh, we treat them so well. We, you know, we recognize that they have emotions. I said, well, thank God for that. I said, come and look. I went to their basement lab at, at Stanford University. And there were these beautiful beagles in these tiny cages. Yeah. And I said, you know, and I'd walk there and they would, their tails would start to go. And I said, why are they so happy to see me? Oh, they think you're going to take them for a walk. And I said, and so I take it, you take them for lots of walks a day. Well, we take them for one walk a day. I said, come on, guys. These yeah. dogs want to be with you 24 yeah. hours a day. They don't want to be in a cage, you know? Yeah. I don't know if they still do that, but, but, but at least they did recognize even then that these dogs have strong feelings. Yeah. Yeah, even if they didn't seem to do anything <laughs> differently. Uh, in <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
Yeah. So, Jeffrey, I don't want to get too far towards the end where we're starting the near here without asking a couple more questions specifically about the book. Because one of the things that I thought was so interesting about it amongst many is that as books go, Lost Companions is really something of a um, sort of a potpourri, I guess. Uh, I'd be curious to know what the organizing principle you started with and how did it evolve over the time that you were working on the book? I mean, it just covers a lot of ground and like curious, for example, what the impetus for widening out from this kind of pet-minded premise to include lives stock and wild animals and veganism and dog meat markets. I mean, it really covers a lot of ground that, that I think people coming to a book that they think is about pet death wouldn't necessarily have expected, even though they might find a lot of interesting stuff that they're happy to read and learn. Yeah, that's a fair criticism. Um, and I noticed I, I try not to read too many comments on Amazon because it can get you down. <laughs> yeah, but, and what uh, I was saying wasn't... People. Yeah, what I was saying was, I don't think was intended as a criticism. I, I was just struck by the huge kind of pastiche of issues you did explore and write about. Yeah. That, well, yeah. I'm, I'm, gla I'm glad you asked because it's made me think about it. And I, I, I think the reason is um, how we started this whole conversation that as I approach 80, yeah. uh, I feel it's important to say what I really believe and to try and tie together, if you, if you will, my life. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm not just looking at one thing. I want to look at this in a broader perspective. Mm -hmm. and, and think about what does it mean when we love a dog or a cat and, and that animal is about to die? What does that tell us about ourselves? What does that tell us about what we should be thinking about? What is it tell us about what we've done wrong yeah. you know all the things i mean it really and and as as i'm getting ready to die i have to think well what you know what am i proud of and what do i wish i had done differently mm -hmm. and you know when you think about raising children and you know i raised three i have these two sons and um and then a daughter who's 46 and she's getting her first dog now for her three-year-old she's 46 year old but she and her wife are getting uh their first puppy for their three and a half year old son Oh, that's because great. we urge them to do this. Yeah. So there's nothing better for a child than to grow up with a dog. Sure. And I do believe that. So I wanted to think about all the, of these things. I didn't want to yeah. just write, you know, one point about how we sure. should deal with the death of a dog or cat. I wanted us to think about what is what is the dying of a dog whom we love so much? What does that tell us about the world we live in and how we should live? So I guess in, in a way, I've always been like that. I've always tried to see the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And it's one reason why I could never have been a scientist, really. I'm not a scientist by any means. You mean just um, the, the specific I focus think it's that I can't focus. I was reading something yesterday about these scientists who worked for 46 years in the Galapagos measuring finches. And in the end, they were able to say, we found a new species of finch. And I think, gee, it's amazing they could do that. But so what? You know? Yeah, well. <laughs> I want to know, how does this make you feel about the world? world we're living in right yeah no it's a different uh, so that's that's my explanation to you that's yeah. what i would say to you nobody's asked me that question and it's a good question and thank you for not being super critical, but just wanting to know. And I think, you know, it's important to, to, to understand our own motivation. Why are we writing this book? Yeah. You know, what's, what, what's the point? And, and my wife, Lila, constantly says to me, why are you doing this? What's, what's the larger issue? What's an issue here? And, you know, I think of that even when I read. I, I don't actually like to read just for pleasure. I think, I always think, well, there's got to be a bigger, something bigger behind this. What am I learning? What is this teaching me? What is it getting me to reflect about? What's the payoff, um, I guess, and, right? Yeah, you know, yeah I, I do feel that. And yeah. I mean, in a way that's wrong because what's the payoff of living with a cat? It's just lovely. It's just fun, right. you know? They're, yeah. they're warm, soft bodies in bed with you. What's the point? Well, the point is pleasure. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, one of our cats, I'm at a coffee table where my laptop is. And one of the cats, one of our cats has been sitting also on the coffee table the whole time, seeming very interested in the conversation. So I think that's a good sign. But um, Well, that's one of the great pleasures of life. I mean, there really, there are few things that can match the contentment of a cat watching you purring, yeah. sitting on your lap. And especially, as I just said, sleeping. There is nothing quite like sleeping with a cat. 
because, and I think the reason is they're really a wild animal and that they would trust you, that they would close their eyes and go to sleep next to you yeah. knowing that they're going to be safe. That's astonishing, isn't it, Duncan? Yeah, and especially when you see certain ones like this one in particular who sleeps like almost upside down and totally vulnerable, which you it couldn't be more trusting sleeping in such an exposed position. So I'm always- That's right, that. That, they, yeah. that they make themselves so vulnerable to us yeah. with complete trust. Yeah. Dogs and cats, I think, are the only two animals that will do that. Yeah. So again, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Jeffrey Mason, the New York Times bestselling author, whose new book is Lost Companions, Reflections on the Death of Pets. He joined me from Sydney, Australia, in a Zoom call recorded Friday. So some of the time, I guess along those lines, in the book, you're sort of musing about what the animal's grief must feel like to the animal, which I think is yes. really un- interesting. I mean, we've talked about elephants and things that are more clear cut, but anything you want to say about either other animals that working on the book maybe prompted you to think about their grief in the way that it's more demonstrable, like what elephants kind of grieving, uh, what they what that looks like, but any other animals that you got really thinking about how they grieve uh, in the same way? Well, yeah, I mean, I find it always very interesting when somebody lives with a wild animal who is not confined. That fascinates me. Yeah. And I do tell the story in there about a wombat. So where yeah. I am now, I'm up in the Blue Mountains, and this is wombat country. So okay. you see quite a few of these wombats. They're these little tanks, and they live in these vast tunnels un- underground. They're very, very solid, you know, they're nearly 100 pounds of pure muscle. So nobody messes with them. Wow. Um, but I tell the story of a, a, a wonderful Val Plumwood who, who died not long ago, but she was a, a great um, feminist and she lived by herself in the mountains uh, in Australia and a wild wombat decided he wanted to live with her part of the time. So he would come during the day and at night he would wander off and it occurred to me and then when, when he died, she grieved very deeply, even though they did not have the kind of intense relationship that you have with a dog or a cat. Mm. In other words, this wombat, she didn't go and pat the wombat and cuddle with the wombat and sleep with the wombat. But I guess it was the fact that he trusted her, that he was curious enough about her to come there. And she reflected, you know, what does this wombat think of me? And I I think about that a lot. You know, what do, what are these what is even a dog and a cat? Who do they think we are in their lives? Yeah. And I now think, I think the dogs really believe that we're just a different kind of dog. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and, and for me, they're just a different kind of human in a way. You know? Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think we say their family, I think they think that too, that the dog thinks they're part of my family. You know, they're, they're yeah. my best friend. They're, and, and, and that to me is fascinating that not only do we cross the species barrier, but I think certain other animals cross the species barrier too. Yeah. And it leaves me, and this, I wish I had another 10 years to think about it or, or examine this or do research, but I believe there, there may even be animals in the wild, totally wild animals who form friendship across the species barrier. Yeah. But there's no evidence of that. As far as we know, that doesn't happen. You don't suddenly find a lion and, and an elephant becoming best buddies. You know, yeah. you may have seen that. There, there was a picture of that on the internet. Right. It was fake. Right. You know? and that's the right. problem. Today. When you have these deep fakes, you can make it look like an elephant and a, and a cougar are best friends. Sure. But I do wonder whether any animal, are we the only species that forms friendships across the species barrier, along with dogs. Yeah. So if dogs can do that with us, do wild wolves ever form a friendship with another species? And I suspect that if we start looking for it, we may even find it. Did you yeah. see my octopus teacher? Oh, yeah. You've, oh, my God. Yeah. My God. What? That's my favorite documentary of all times. Yeah. Because what that shows, it is extraordinary. It shows for the first time that a wild octopus can make friends with a human. Yeah. So you've got to wonder, maybe they do this in the wild and we just have never been attuned to it enough to notice it. Yeah. Well, I yeah. I was just going to say, if I had you to guess, have- 
I would say that that does happen because I think there are instances that we have seen, for better or worse, in more captive settings where there are cross-species friendships and relationships, not just doctored up kooky things on the internet, but actual things that like sanctuaries or other places where animals do befriend others or uh, famously for a number of years at the elephant Good sanctuary. Good point. There, Good there point. Sanctuaries. Was, I love them because yeah, that's where you get to see this. Yeah. Actually happen. You see various animals who form friendships with other animals because there's no predator-prey relationship there, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That dog and that elephant that were friends at the elephant sanctuary for years and years, is that was like a classic friendship that couldn't have been more cross-species, really. So That's right. Yeah. You know, I remember visiting Tippi Hedron, the, the actress, one day. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and, and she had a big cat sanctuary. Right. And we were walking around there, and suddenly this three-legged, what, what do you call them, the fastest animal on Earth? What is that? The, the cheetah. Oh, okay. This, yeah, yeah. No, it was a cheetah. Yeah, okay. A three-legged cheetah came along, and I said, oh, my God. She said, no, pat him. He loves people. And sure enough, he was totally free. He was not kept in a cage. Hmm. And I thought, this is astonishing. Yeah. You know, and it made me think then that, uh, yeah, I haven't been in touch with Tippy Hedron for a long time. I only suddenly thought of her when uh, James Bond died because they for had sure. made that movie together. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, Jeffrey, we're sort of at the tail end of our time, but I, I've got to believe someone as prolific as you are. I think you've written, by my count, well, certainly more than two dozen books uh, spanning your, your other career as well. So, are there books? 31. Or books? 31. Yeah, okay. So, I knew I was a few shy. I knew it was at least... Uh, in the 20s somewhere, I guess I missed a couple to get to 31. So my point is someone like that seems to be always working on at least one or two books. Is there a, a next Jeffrey Mason book in the pipeline? Well, there is. And um, I don't I don't know if anybody will ever publish it, but what I'm thinking about, um, and my wife gave me the title, so excuse, can I use an expletive online here? Uh, well, this will actually go out over the broadcast airwaves, so probably best not to, uh, probably just better to suggest. Okay, well, well, yeah. then I'll put it. I'll put it differently. What is wrong with our species? Okay. All right. So and, I think we can and figure we out can the word what it's really yeah. called. Sure. But I want. I, I really think that's a deep question, and yeah. I, I believe a lot of people are going to start thinking about, it, especially right at this very instance when you in America are in the middle of something astonishing happening, yeah. in which you have to ask yourself, who are we? How right. did we get? to this point what is wrong with us yeah you know no other animal in the wild has ever reached the kind of situation or position that we are where it looks like the whole planet is in danger no i think that sounds like a really interesting book so i i would imagine somebody would be quite interested in publishing that so. i hope so so, well, we've already from, got from the your provocative mouth to title. Ears, my friend. <laughs> yeah, well, no, like I say, we've well, already got the provocative title, so we're halfway there right off the bat. But uh, yeah, that's right. Now all I have to do is write it, and then la la and, and finally, a publisher has to say, "I'll take a chance, Mason." <laughs> yeah. Well, something tells you know, me with your track my, record, the odds are good. So, so Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals again. This has been Jeffrey Mason. The new book is Lost Companions, Reflections on the Death of Pets. And wherever you get your books, you can certainly get that one amongst many others that preceded it. And uh, Jeffrey, thanks so much. It was great chatting with you. Well, Duncan, let me just say you're one of the best interviewers I've ever had. Wow. Well, that's high praise. Thank you very much. I really much. mean that. I've never had somebody as sympathetic, as intelligent, as open as you. And it's a tremendous pleasure. It reminds me why I write, because there are people like you out there who will read it and think about it about it. <laughs> wow. Well, flattery Me will get too. you everywhere. Okay. Thank you, Duncan. It was thank, a great thank pleasure. You. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. My thanks once again to Jeffrey Mason for uh, the interview and again the very kind words there at the end. And speaking of words, we have word from Sean Canan in the WMNF's news department with Hurricane Ata looming. He has created a uh, webpage on WMNF.org that has information about school closures, watches and warnings, sandbag availability, etc., which uh, he'll be updating throughout the day. So again, that's at WMNF.org and of course keep it tuned here throughout the day and night uh, to WMNF and uh, get updates and other information likewise about uh, Hurricane Ada and what needs to be known and done in preparation for that. 
In a moment, I'll speak with Quinn Piggott of Replace Denver BSL, which was instrumental in the recent election victory in which Denver's ban on pit bull dogs was repealed after more than 30 years. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with one of our faves, Eddie Pepitone, giving new meaning to the phrase therapy dog. This is Eddie Pepitone on Talking Animals on WMNF. But I've turned my dog, I've turned my dog into my shrink. I'm talking to her now as if she was my shrink because I'm bored to tears with my real shrink. You know what I mean? We understand each other. I'm there to fill an hour. She gets some insurance money, whatever it is, but... But now I talk to my dog like she's my shrink. I, I'm, I'm saying to her like, Charlotte, you don't think I have diabetes, do you? <laughs> I mean, they've got blood work all the time. Those centrifuges they use, a lot of them are suspect. (laughs) And Charlotte, you don't think the cops saw me sideswipe that car? (laughs) In the shopping supermarket parking lot? I mean, the police would be here already, right? Charlotte, it's not too bad that I threaten people anonymously online, is it? Charlotte, I have enough money in my bank account, right? By the way, if Charlotte knew how much money I have in my bank account, instead of running and chasing balls, she'd just be in the apartment smoking for cigarettes. She'd just be like going, great, I thought I landed on my feet here. That was Eddie Pepitone in today's Comedy Corner with a portion of a piece called Dog Therapy, taken from his album In Ruins. Now it's time to speak with Quinn Piggott, a leader of Replace Denver BSL, a key force behind the Election Day victory last week that served to repeal Denver's longtime ban on pit bull dogs. This is Quinn Piggott on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Quinn. Yes. Okay, sorry. There we are. All right. Thought we didn't quite have it. How are you this morning? Good. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So let's start kind of on the remedial level, if we can. Can you just describe the Denver pit bull ban? how it worked, and the dogs, and and people, really, for that matter, that it affected? Yeah, so um, the ban had been in place for 30 years in Denver, and um, to be honest, the reason why we wanted to replace it was because it wasn't working. Um, There were obviously uh, pit bull-type dogs in the Denver area. If you just walked around, you could kind of see, um, you know, different animals that resembled a pit bull. Um, So how it worked in Denver was that people really just called in to report these dogs the last, I believe, three years of um, this ban being in place. The majority of the calls um, that came in were just people visually saying that there was a pit bull type dog in the area and not because they were being a disruptive animal or being a disturbance um, to the neighborhood, but just that they saw it and know that they were um, illegal. So uh, animal control had to respond to all of those um, accusations And it just was a hindrance to what they actually do as an organization um, because the majority of the calls that came in were actually false accusations. Um, So if someone was reporting a pit bull type dog, they obviously had to go out and investigate. If they did find that it was a pit bull, the owners would get a warning um, that they would have to remove their dog um, and they either had to get rid of their dog or they themselves had to move out of the city limits. So it definitely was um, an archaic law that really wasn't helping the community at all. Yeah, and as you know, and and I I guess I did too, introducing you, I mean, the the thing had been in place for 30 years or so and it really, for better or worse, become really well-known, I mean, now nationally and beyond. I mean, it had been a prominent part of a, a Bruce Cameron book, A Dog's Way Home, and the film 
that was made from it, but just often cited in the animal world, the dog world, the pit bull world. So it really been high profile for a number of years, I guess, is what I'm trying to suggest here. So yeah. with that in mind, what have been some of the more serious previous efforts to overturn the ban? Yeah, there were some efforts before um, it went to a vote um, in the early 2000s, and, but nothing really got as far as how our organization um, got it. We actually were working with Councilman Herndon, which was a, a huge help in what we were trying to do. Um, you know, he obviously brought it to the floor to have council vote on it, um, which hadn't happened before. So we really, you know, took advantage of his help and his generosity of, of bringing it to the forefront and helping us get there quicker. Um, as just opposed to, you know, us being an organization and doing it ourselves. Yeah. So I guess part of what you guys did when you were sort of formulating some kind of strategy is saying, OK, well, what what can we really do that's going to get somewhere uh, on some sort of legislative level? And I guess you obviously exactly. identified Councilman Herndon and said, OK, he's he's going to help us, but we've got to do this, this and this so that he can help us. Exactly. Exactly. We like to say that, you know, we wouldn't be here without him and, you know, he wouldn't be there without us. It definitely was a team um, effort because uh, we really kind of, you know, got the community involved um, across the nation. Um, it kind of was an amazing outreach and support all over the country, um, actually all over the world. Um, and so we really um, helped each other get this awareness up, get this education out there and be able to overturn um, this kind of archaic law. And so, uh, Quinn, was it also then, especially with kind of a more of a nationwide effort that you just mentioned, was it just sort of one of those things where it's kind of time? I mean, some would say, hey, man, 30 years, it's way overdue. But I, I guess I just mean that sometimes things kind of reach a certain level where there's a sense of understanding that that kind of law or that kind of legislation is deeply flawed, as you've already, already described, in terms of trying to enforce it or whatever, uh, you know, was sort of arbitrary. And But sometimes, too, I just think that there's as more awareness just uh, is raised about a certain issue, in this case, pit bulls, the kind of discrimination that goes with just generally, but also then when there is that kind of legislation, that there is sort of this critical mass maybe had been reached, uh, sort of overlapping your efforts to repeal the ban? Yes, I think that but uh, people are realizing, you know, some laws that are put in place. There wasn't a lot of research done. There wasn't a lot of education done. I think that a lot of people have realized that, you know, this is an issue also for owners. It's, it's an owner responsibility that people have to take as dog owners. And what we've realized in, in Colorado and Denver specifically is that there are actually more dogs than there are babies. So people are having children later. They are having more and more animals per household, and they need to res be responsible for their animals. And I think that across the nation, everyone is realizing this discrimination towards a specific breed it should just not be tolerated anymore and that we need to come together and come up with a better solution um, to take care of these animals and while also providing a safe community for everyone else around you. Yeah. So what would you say were the chief obstacles? I mean, there's always anything Pitbull related. There's always these myths and misconceptions squ swirling around. So I imagine you were sort of grappling with that. What else were kind of key obstacles to to getting things lined up so that this could pass and Councilman Hernan could do his his thing, et cetera? Yeah. Um, well, you know, my colleague Shira and I, we did, in working with Councilman Herndon in his office, we did about three, two and a half years of research, and Shira actually created a briefing book with all of the statistics, um, factual statistics. I think our biggest obstacle was the media. You know, if you Google Pitbull, the first thing that comes up is like a snarling, you know, teeth out dog. Yeah. And I think the media has portrayed these dogs in a bad light. Um, and the facts and the statistics don't back that up. So I think our biggest obstacle um, was proving to people that, you know, just because we're going to pass this doesn't mean we don't want laws in place for our animals. Um, we want everyone to be safe and we want every animal to be safe and treated fairly. So that, I think, was our biggest obstacle was definitely kind of the media and the perception that people already had of these dogs. Yeah, it's really interesting how tough it is to sort of bust out of what the thinking is and then the thinking gets perpetuated and then the cover. If there's a dog bite incident, it's almost immediately a pit bull 
whether or not the dog is remotely pit bull related or looks like a pit bull or acts like it has anything to do with it. There's just that assumption. So then, as you found and probably had to overcome, there is a lot of media and other things that just perpetuate that and leads to, I think, a lot of biases and, and fear that are really tough to uh, to com- combat. Yeah, yeah. So... Leading up to election day, what was your feeling? Did you guys already kind of feel like, hey, we've pretty much got this? Or was there still uncertainty as election day approached? Or I mean, we had a lot of amazing outreach. Um, we had a lot of volunteers that were helping us. We had a lot of great feedback that was coming back. But if anyone has ever worked on a campaign, you know that it's just it's so hard to tell when the actual day um, comes around. In Denver specifically, we had about... 25 different things to vote on in November, on November 3rd. Uh, um, it yeah. was a very extensive ballot. So there were five pages. Um, we were on the back of the, you know, the bottom of the back of the second to last page. Um, and so our biggest concern was that people weren't going to read through the entire ballot, that they weren't going to vote on everything um, or they were just going to skim through it. Mm. So our biggest obstacle in the campaign was just to make sure people knew that we were on the ballot. Um, and to vote yes on it. Yeah. Um, and so that was our biggest obstacle. And so it really just hard. it was really hard to tell. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. We were optimistic, but it was hard to tell. Yeah, well, uh, no doubt. And uh, we're sort of nearing at the end of our time here, Quinn. But I'd be curious, in the same way that you mentioned earlier, that kind of nationwide, there was a bit of a, efforts to to help you guys with this. Are there implications for other cities that still have pit bull bans that that your victory carries for those other places that might be trying to repeal their bans? Yeah. So actually, there's a city right next to Denver called Aurora. And they were in the process of doing this um, a little bit differently than we were. And the ball kind of started to get rolling again mm-hmm. after it passed in Denver. And then there's another town called Lone Tree that also is now working on it. So we're really hoping that this victory um, kind of gives people the courage and the passion to do it in their own city. And, you know, we aren't going anywhere as an organization. We would love to help in any way that we can. We're going to sit down and figure out what that means for for our organization, but you know, we want this be something that is a ripple effect for other cities across the country. That's great. So, before we go, maybe you just with that in mind, quickly give us the uh, the website for Replace Denver BSL. Yeah, so we're www.replacedenverbsl.org. Okay, you can always find us on Facebook or Instagram, um, and you can message us anytime. Um, and that's Replace Denver BSL um, for both of those. That's great. Well, good. So anybody who's whether they're nearby or elsewhere, anybody trying to uh, do the same amount, the same kind of effort, it sounds like it could tap your expertise and contact you for that kind of help. Yes, definitely. That's great. Well, Quinn, thank you so much. This has been Quinn Piggott from Replace Denver BSL. Congratulations on a Huge, huge, and very important victory. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Duncan. I appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you. Sure. I'm Duncan Strauss. We're listening to Talking Animals coming up at 11 on WNF. It's Rob Lorai with Radioactivity, followed at noon by Midpoint with NOLA. Then at 1 p.m., the music kicks back in with 360 Degrees of Blues, hosted by Harrison Nash, followed by Scott Elliott in the All Souls edition of It's the Music. We're going to jump into uh, Name That Animal Tune. And we'll be offering a Talking Animals t-shirt or something like that to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal tune. It's named an animal tune on Talking Animals and WMF. All right, we have just about reached the end of Talking Animals on WN of Tampa. Wanted to let you know that next week my guest will be dog behaviorist Michael Shikashio, who specializes in working with dogs with aggression issues. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. Thanks.